Section 12 of Mark the Matchboy, or Richard Hunter's Ward, by Horatio Alger, Jr. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tori Falder. Mark the Matchboy, or Richard Hunter's Ward, by Horatio Alger, Jr. Chapter 23. Who was the Thief? When Roswell rose the next morning, he felt cross and out of sorts. His head still ached a little, and he wished he were not obliged to go to the store. But it was out of the question to remain at home, so he started about half an hour after the usual time, and of course arrived late. "'You are late this morning,' said Mr. Baker. "'You must be more particular about being here in good season.' Roswell muttered something about not feeling quite well. Putting his hand into his pocket by chance, his fingers came in contact with the key which he had made to open the cash drawer. Just as he was passing Mark, he drew it out and let it drop into the side pocket of his jacket. So, if suspicion were excited, the key would be found on Mark, not on him. The critical moment came sooner than he had anticipated. A Mr. Gay, one of the regular customers of the bookstore, entered a few minutes later. "'Good morning, Mr. Baker,' he said. "'Have you got a Tribune this morning?' "'Yes, here is one. By the way, you are just the man I wanted to see.' "'Indeed, I feel complimented.' Wait till you hear what I'm going to say. You bought a copy of Corinne here on Monday. Yes. And handed me a $5 bill on the park bank? Yes. Well, I find the bill was a skillfully executed counterfeit. Indeed! I didn't examine it very closely, but I know where I took it and will give you a good bill in exchange for it. I locked it up lest it should get out, said Mr. Baker. He went to the drawer which Roswell had opened. Roswell listened to this conversation with dismay. He realized that he was in a tight place, for it was undoubtedly the five-dollar counterfeit which he had taken, and paid to the secretary of the Madison Club. He awaited nervously the result of Mr. Baker's examination. "'Don't you find it?' asked Mr. Gay. "'It is very strange,' said Mr. Baker. "'I placed it at the top of a pile of bills, and now it is gone.' "'Look through the pile. Perhaps your memory is at fault,' said Mr. Gay. Mr. Baker did so. "'No,' he said. "'The bill has disappeared.' Do you miss anything else? No, the money is just five dollars short. Perhaps you forget yourself and paid it away to a customer. Impossible. I always make change out of this drawer. Well, when you find it, I will make it right. I am in a hurry this morning. Mr. Gay went out. Has anyone been to this drawer? inquired Mr. Baker abruptly. You always keep it locked, do you not? said Mr. Jones. And keep the key myself, yes. Then I don't see how it could have been opened. There was nothing peculiar about the lock. There might easily be another key to fit it. I hope you don't suspect me, Mr. Baker. No, Mr. Jones, you have been with me five years, and I have perfect confidence in you. Thank you, sir. I hope you don't suspect me, sir, said Roswell boldly. I am willing to turn my pockets inside out to show that I have no key that will fit the lock. Very well, you may do so. Roswell turned his pockets inside out, but of course no key was found. How lucky I got rid of it, he thought. Now it's your turn, Mark, he said. I'm perfectly willing, said Mark promptly. He put his hand into his pocket, and to his unutterable astonishment and dismay, drew out a key. I didn't know I had this in my pocket, he said, startled. Hand me that key, said Mr. Baker sternly. Mark handed it to him mechanically. Mr. Baker went behind the counter and fitted the key in the lock. It proved to open the drawer with ease. Where did you get this key, he said. I didn't know I had it, sir, said Mark earnestly. I hope you will believe me. 
I don't understand how you can hope anything of the kind. It seems very clear that you have been at my drawer and taken the missing money. When did you take it? I have never opened the drawer nor taken your money, said Mark in a firm voice, though his cheek was pale and his look was troubled. I am sorry to say that I do not believe you, said Mr. Baker coldly. Once more, when did you take the five dollars? I did not take it at all, sir. Have you lent the key to anyone? No, sir, I did not know I had it. I don't know what to do in the matter, said the bookseller, turning to Mr. Jones, his assistant. It seems clear to me that the boy took the missing bill. I'm afraid so, said Jones, who was a kind-hearted man and pitied Mark. But I don't know when he could have had the chance. He is never left alone in the store. Roswell, said Mr. Baker, have you left Mark alone in the store at any time within two or three days? Roswell saw the point of the inquiry and determined as a measure of safety to add falsehood to his former offense. Yes, sir, he said in an apologetic tone. I left him in the store for two or three minutes yesterday. Why did you leave him? Did you go out of the store? Yes, sir. A friend was passing and I went out to speak to him. I don't think I stayed more than two or three minutes. And Mark was left alone in the store. Yes, sir. I had no idea that any harm would come of it. Mark looked intently at Roswell when he uttered this falsehood. You had better confess, Mark, that you took the money when Roswell was out of the store, said his employer. If you make a full confession, I will be as lenient with you as I can, considering your youth. Mr. Baker, said Mark quietly, more at his ease now, since he began to understand that there was a plot against him. I cannot confess what is not true. I don't know what Roswell means by what he has just said, but I was not left alone in the store for a moment at all yesterday, nor did Roswell go out to speak to a friend while I was about. There seems to be a conflict of evidence here, said Mr. Baker. I hope the word of a gentleman's son is worth more than that of a match-boy, said Roswell haughtily. To whom do you refer when you speak of a match-boy? To him, said Roswell, pointing to Mark. He used to be a vagabond boy about the streets selling matches and sleeping anywhere he could. No wonder he steals. I never stole in my life, said Mark indignantly. It is true that I sold matches about the streets, and I should have been doing it now if it had not been for my meeting with kind friends. As to this having been a match-boy, that has no bearing upon the question, said Mr. Baker. It is the discovery of the key in his pocket that throws the gravest suspicion upon him. I must see his friends and inquire into the matter. Of course they will stand by him, said Roswell. We may get some light thrown upon his possession of the key at any rate, and can judge for ourselves. I shall keep you employed until this matter is investigated, said Mr. Baker to Mark. Here is a parcel of books to be carried to 27th Street. Come back as soon as they are delivered. Mark went out with a heavy heart, for it troubled him to think he was under suspicion. Theft, too, he had always despised. He wondered if Richard Hunter would believe him guilty. He could not bear to think that so kind a friend should think so ill of him. But Mark's vindication was not long in coming. He had been out scarcely ten minutes when Roswell, upon looking up, saw to his dismay Tracy, the secretary of the Madison Club, entering the store. His heart misgave him as to the nature of the business on which he had probably come. He went forward hastily to meet him. How are you, Crawford? said Tracy. Pretty well. I'm very busy now. I will see you after the store closes. Anywhere you please. Oh, said Tracy, in a voice loud enough for Mr. Baker to hear. It won't take a minute. The bill you gave me last night was a bad one. Of course, you didn't know it. Roswell turned red and pale and hoped Mr. Baker did not hear. But Mr. Baker had caught the words and came forward. Show me the bill, if you please, young gentleman, he said. I have a good reason for asking. 
"'Certainly, sir,' said Tracy, rather surprised. "'Here it is.' A moment's glance satisfied Mr. Baker that it was the missing bill. "'Did Roswell pay you this bill?' he asked. "'Yes, sir. For what did he owe it? I am the secretary of the Madison Club, and this was paid as the entrance fee.' "'I recognize the bill,' said Mr. Baker. "'I will take it, if you please, and you can look to him for another.' "'Very well,' said Tracy, puzzled by the words, the motive of which he did not understand. "'Perhaps you will explain this,' said Mr. Baker, turning to Roswell. "'It seems that you took this bill.' Roswell's confidence deserted him, and he stood pale and downcast. "'The key, I presume, belonged to you?' "'Yes, sir,' he ejaculated with difficulty. "'And you dropped it into Mark's pocket, thus meanly trying to implicate him in a theft which you had yourself committed?' Roswell was silent. "'Have you taken money before?' "'I never opened the drawer but once.' "'That was not my question. "'Make a full confession, and I will not have you arrested, "'but shall require you to make restitution "'of all the sums you have stolen. "'I shall not include this bill, "'as it is now returned to my possession. "'Here is a piece of paper. "'Write down the items.' "'Roswell did so. "'They footed up a little over six dollars. "'Mr. Baker examined it. "'Is this all?' he said. "'Yes, sir.' Half a week's wages are due you. I will therefore deduct three dollars from this amount. The remainder I shall expect you to refund. I shall have no further occasion for your services. Roswell took his cap and was about to leave the store. Wait a few minutes. You have tried to implicate Mark in your theft. You must wait till his return and apologize to him for what you have attempted to do. Must I do this? asked Roswell ruefully. You must, said Mr. Baker firmly. When Mark came in and was told how he had been cleared of suspicion, he felt very happy. Roswell made the apology dictated to him with a very bad grace and was then permitted to leave the store. At home he tried to hide the circumstances attending his discharge from his mother and his cousin, but the necessity of refunding the money made that impossible. It was only a few days afterwards that Mrs. Crawford received a letter informing her of the death of a brother in Illinois and that he had left her a small house and farm. She had found it so hard a struggle for the livelihood in the city that she decided to remove thither, greatly to Roswell's disgust, who did not wish to be immured in the country. But his wishes could not be gratified, and sulky and discontented, he was obliged to leave the choice society of the Madison Club and the attractions of New York for the quiet of a country town. Let us hope that away from the influences of the city his character may be improved and become more manly and self-reliant. It is only just to say that he was led to appropriate what did not belong to him by the desire to gratify his vanity and through the influence of a bad adviser. If he can ever forget that he is the son of a gentleman, I shall have some hopes for him. Chapter 24. An Excursion to Fort Hamilton. Towards the close of May there was a general holiday, occasioned by the arrival of a distinguished stranger in the city. All the stores were to be closed. There was to be a turnout of the military and a long procession. Among those released from duty were our three friends, Fosdick, Richard Hunter, and his ward, Mark. "'Well, Dick, what are you going to do tomorrow?' inquired Fosdick on the evening previous. "'I was expecting an invitation to ride in a barouche with the mayor,' said Richard, "'but probably he forgot my address and couldn't send it. "'On the whole, I'm glad of it, being rather bashful and not used to popular enthusiasm.' "'Shall you go out and see the procession?' continued Fosdick. "'No,' said Dick, "'I have been thinking of another plan, which I think will be pleasanter.' What is it? It's a good while since we took an excursion. Suppose we go to Fort Hamilton tomorrow. I should like that, said Fosdick. I was never there. How do we get there? Cross over Fulton Ferry to Brooklyn, and there we might take the cars to Fort Hamilton. It's seven or eight miles out there. Why do you say might take the cars? 
because the cars will be crowded with excursionists, and I have been thinking we might hire a carriage on the Brooklyn side and ride out there in style. It'll cost more money, but we don't often take a holiday, and we can afford it for once. What do you say, Mark? Do you mean me to go? asked Mark eagerly. Of course I do. Do you think your guardian would trust you to remain in the city alone? I go in for your plan, Dick, said Fosdick. What time do you want to start? About half past nine o'clock. That will give us plenty of time to go. Then after exploring the fort, we can get dinner at the hotel and drive where we please afterwards. I suppose there is sea bathing nearby. Dick's idea was unanimously approved, and by no one more than Mark. Holidays had been few and far between with him, and he anticipated the excursion with the most eager delight. He was only afraid that the weather would prove unpropitious. He was up at four looking out of the window, but the skies were clear, and soon the sun came out with full radiance, dissipating the night shadows and promising a glorious day. Breakfast was later than usual, as people liked to indulge themselves in a little longer sleep on Sundays and holidays, but it was over by half-past eight, and within a few minutes from that time the three had taken the cars to Fulton Ferry. In about half an hour the ferry was reached, and passing through the party went on board the boat. They had scarcely done so when an exclamation of surprise was heard, proceeding from the feminine lips, and Dick heard himself called by name. "'Why, Mr. Hunter, this is an unexpected pleasure. I am so glad to have met you.' Turning his head, Dick recognized Mr. and Mrs. Clifton. Both have been fellow boarders with him in Bleecker Street. The latter will be remembered by the readers of fame and fortune as Miss Peyton. When close upon the verge of old maidenhood, she had been married for the sake of a few thousand dollars which she possessed by Mr. Clifton, a clerk on a small salary in a constant pecuniary difficulties. With a portion of his wife's money, he had purchased a partnership in a dry goods store on 8th Avenue, but the remainder of her money Mrs. Clifton had been prudent enough to have settled upon herself. Mrs. Clifton still wore the same ringlets and exhibited the same youthful vivacity which had characterized her when an inmate of Mrs. Browning's boarding house and only owned to being twenty-four, though she looked full ten years older. "'How do you do, Hunter?' drawled Mr. Clifton, upon whose arm his wife was leaning. "'Very well, thank you,' said Dick. "'I see Mrs. Clifton is as fascinating as ever.' "'Oh, you wicked flatterer,' said Mrs. Clifton, shaking her ringlets and tapping Dick on the shoulder with her fan. "'And here is Mr. Fosdick, too, I declare. How do you do, Mr. Fosdick?' "'Quite well, thank you, Mrs. Clifton.' I declare, I've a great mind to scold you for not coming round to see us. I should so much like to hear you sing again. My friend hasn't sung since your marriage, Mrs. Clifton, said Dick. He took it very much to heart. I don't think he has forgiven Clifton yet for cutting him out. Mr. Hunter is speaking for himself, said Fosdick, smiling. He has sung as little as I have. Yes, but for another reason, said Dick. I did not think it right to run the risk of driving away the boarders. So out of regard to my landlady, I repressed my natural tendency to warble. I see you're just as bad as ever, said Mrs. Clifton in excellent spirits. But really, you must come round and see us. We're boarding in West 16th Street between 8th and 9th Avenues. If your husband will promise not to be jealous, said Dick. I'm not subject to that complaint, said Clifton coolly. Got a cigar about you, Hunter? No, I don't smoke. No, don't you, though? I couldn't get along without it. It's my great comfort. Yes, he's always smoking, said Mrs. Clifton with some asperity. Our rooms are so full of tobacco smoke that I don't know, but some of my friends will begin to think I smoke myself. A man must have some pleasure, said Clifton, not appearing to be much discomposed by his wife's remarks. It may be mentioned that although Mrs. Clifton was always gay and vivacious in company, there were times when she could display considerable ill temper, as her husband frequently had occasion to know. Among the sources of difficulty and disagreement was that portion of Mrs. Clifton's fortune which had been settled upon herself, 
and of which she was never willing to allow her husband the use of a single dollar. In this, however, she had some justification, as he was naturally a spendthrift, and if placed in his hands, it would soon have melted away. "'Where are you going, Mr. Hunter?' inquired Mrs. Clifton, after a pause. "'Fosdick and I have planned to take a carriage and ride to Fort Hamilton.' "'Delightful,' said Mrs. Clifton. "'Why can't we go too, Mr. Clifton?' "'Why, to tell the plain truth,' said her husband, "'I haven't got money enough with me. "'If you'll pay for the carriage, I'm willing to go.' Mrs. Clifton hesitated. She had money enough with her, but was not inclined to spend it. Still, the prospect of making a joint excursion with Richard Hunter and Fosdick was attractive, and she inquired, "'How much will it cost?' "'About five dollars, probably.' "'Then I think we'll go,' she said. "'That is, if our company would not be disagreeable to Mr. Hunter.' "'On the contrary,' said Dick. "'We will get separate carriages, but I will invite you both to dine with us after visiting the fort.' Mr. Clifton brightened up at this, and straightway became more social and cheerful. "'Mrs. Clifton,' said Richard Hunter, "'I believe I haven't yet introduced you to my ward.' "'Is that your ward?' inquired the lady, looking towards Mark. "'What's his name?' "'Mark Manton.' "'How do you like your guardian?' inquired Mrs. Clifton. "'Very much,' said Mark, smiling. "'Then I won't expose him,' said Mrs. Clifton. "'We used to be great friends before I married.' "'Since that sad event I have never recovered my spirits,' said Dick. "'Mark will tell you what a poor appetite I have.' "'Is that true, Mark?' asked the lady. "'I don't think it's very poor,' said Mark with a smile. "'Probably my readers will not consider this conversation very brilliant. "'But Mrs. Clifton was a silly woman who was fond of attention "'and was incapable of talking sensibly. "'Richard would have preferred not to have her husband or herself in company, "'but finding it inevitable submitted to it with as good a grace as possible. "'Carriages were secured at a neighboring stable, and the two parties started. "'The drive was found to be very pleasant, "'particularly the latter portion when a fresh breeze from the sea "'made the air delightfully cool.' As they drove up beside the fort, they heard the band within playing a march, and giving their horses in charge, they were soon exploring the interior. The view from the ramparts proved to be fine, commanding a good view of the harbor and the city of New York, nearly eight miles distant to the north. "'It is a charming view,' said Mrs. Clifton, with girlish enthusiasm. "'I know what will be more charming,' said her husband. "'What is it? A prospect of the dinner-table. I feel awfully hungry.' "'Mr. Clifton never thinks of anything but eating,' said his wife. "'By Jove, you can do your share at that,' retorted her husband, not very gallantly. "'You'd ought to see her eat, Hunter.' "'I don't eat more than a little bird,' said Mrs. Clifton affectedly. "'I appeal to Mr. Hunter. "'If any little bird ate as much as you, he'd be sure to die of dyspepsy,' said her husband. "'If the words in italics is incorrectly spelled, I am not responsible, "'and that is the way Mr. Clifton pronounced it.' "'I confess the ride has given me an appetite also,' said Dick. "'Suppose we go round to the hotel and order dinner.' They were soon seated round a bountifully spread dinner-table, to which the whole party, not excepting Mrs. Clifton, did excellent justice. It will not be necessary or profitable to repeat the conversation which seasoned the repast, as out of deference to Mrs. Clifton's taste, none of the party ventured upon any sensible remarks.' After dinner they extended their drive and then parted as Mr. and Mrs. Clifton decided to make a call upon some friends living in the neighborhood. About four o'clock Richard Hunter and his friends started on their return home. They had about reached the Brooklyn city line when Fosdick suddenly exclaimed, "'Dick, there's a carriage overturned a little ways ahead of us. Do you see it?' Looking in the direction indicated, Dick saw that Fosdick was correct. "'Let us hurry on,' he said. "'Perhaps we may be able to render some assistance.' 
Coming up, they found that a wheel had come off, and a gentleman of middle age was leaning against a tree with an expression of pain upon his features, while a boy of about seventeen was holding the horse. "'Frank Whitney!' exclaimed Dick, in joyful recognition. To Frank Whitney, Dick was indebted for the original impulse which led him to resolve upon gaining a respectable position in society, as will be remembered by the readers of Ragged Dick, and for this he had always felt grateful. Dick, exclaimed Frank in equal surprise, I am really glad to see you. You are a friend in need. Tell me what has happened. The wheel of our carriage came off, as you see, and my uncle was pitched out with considerable violence, and has sprained his ankle badly. I was wondering what to do when luckily you came up. Tell me how I can help you, said Dick promptly, and I will do so. We are stopping at the house of a friend in Brooklyn. If you will give my uncle a seat in your carryall, for he is unable to walk, and carry him there, it will be a great favor. I will remain and attend to the horse and carriage. With pleasure, Frank. Are you going to remain in this neighborhood long? I shall try to gain admission to the sophomore class of Columbia College this summer, and then shall live in New York, where I hope to see you often. I intended to enter last year, but decided for some reasons to delay a year. However, if I am admitted to advanced standing, I shall lose nothing. Give me your address, and I will call on you very soon. I am afraid I shall inconvenience you, said Mr. Whitney. Not at all, said Dick promptly. We have plenty of room, and I shall be glad to have an opportunity of obliging one to whom I am indebted for past kindness. Mr. Whitney was assisted into the carriage, and they resumed their drive, deviating from their course somewhat, in order to leave him at the house of a friend with whom he was stopping. I am very glad to have met Frank again, thought Dick. I always liked him. End of section 12 of Mark the Matchboy or Richard Hunter's Ward by Horatio Alger, Jr. Recording by Tori Falder.